late 19th century London. The Industrial Revolution is booming. Workers and their families are flooding into the city amidst an unparalleled economic expansion. But the exploding growth comes with a price. Overcrowding, disease and crime have taken over the streets. The situation is worst in London's East End, where families crowd into filthy, unlivable conditions. From this crisis comes a bold experiment. A vicar named Samuel Barnett brings together a group of wealthy Londoners in the parlour of his East End home. He presents them with an idea, the creation of a joint stock company that would create dwellings for the poor to address this urgent housing problem. But this won't be a purely charitable venture. Investors will be guaranteed a 5% return. Within just a few years, Barnett's East End Dwellings Company would go on to house 6,000 Londoners in seven buildings. And this was the beginning of a trend of model dwellings companies that provided housing for the working class and the poor all over London. These MDCs were so astonishingly popular because they worked as a reliable investment, producing returns that were higher than other low-risk vehicles like government-issued bonds. A term was coined for this innovative approach embraced by Samuel Barnett and London's model dwellings companies, 5% philanthropy. It was an early example of a movement that would continue to exist on the fringes into the 20th century, a movement that would come to be called socially responsible investing. Today, that movement is known by another, more recognisable term, ESG. That's E for environmental, S for social, and G for governance. These three letters are shaping the markets today and will for decades to come. To understand today's investment landscape, it's important to understand the history of how we got here. I'm Paddy Hirsch, and this is The Outthinking Investor, a podcast from PGIM that untangles the origins, present-day opportunities and future possibilities of the financial tools we take for granted. In this episode, I'll be joined by PGIM's Timer Hyatt and Christy Hill, as well as Fiona Reynolds, the CEO of PRI, Principles for Responsible Investment. We'll trace the evolution of values-based investing to today and investigate modern ESG challenges like greenwashing to show you that all the letters in ESG, especially social factors like racial and gender equity and inclusion, are inextricably linked to the goal of a better global future. It was 50 years ago that Milton Friedman penned his seminal free market manifesto, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits. A company's sole responsibility to society is to make money, he said. As for the communities around it, eh, not its problem. Friedman's ideas were some of the most influential economic arguments of the 20th century, but today they're losing ground to ESG, a movement that some say is challenging the entire notion of capitalism. ESG is estimated at more than $20 trillion in assets under management, or around one quarter of all professionally managed assets around the world. And ESG investing is hot. In 2020, investors paid $51 billion into sustainable funds, compared to less than $5 billion five years ago. But is it more than a passing fad? And if so, how should investors be thinking about ESG going forward? Let's start with this. What exactly is ESG? Well, it's not quite as easy as ABC. 
I would say ESG is a very complicated concept. That's Timer Hyatt. He's PGM's chief operating officer. At its heart, I think it is environmental, social and governance factors that either influence the risk and return of an asset or other good societal objectives that you would want to weight in making a decision on what you hold in your portfolio. And those factors have become increasingly important at financial institutions like PGIM. At the heart of it is the idea that uh, environmental factors, such as the level of a pollution a company might emit, social factors, such as, you know, do we have a company with good racial equity, with good treatment of minorities, and governance, how well is the company governed in terms of its board and its code of conduct, ultimately determine how highly performing a company is and how much it's contributing to society. All the issues that make up ESG factors are really about what makes good business sense over the long term. ESG-focused companies and investors aren't just thinking about what's happening in the world today, they're thinking about trends for tomorrow. Investors are increasingly using their values and ethics to guide their investing practices. It's a trend led in part by millennials. According to a recent study, 90% of people born between 1981 and 1996 believe in sustainable investing. But just because ESG investing has become fashionable, that doesn't mean the concept is new. People often think that responsible investment is a new fad. That's Fiona Reynolds, CEO of PRI, the United Nations-supported organisation which promotes the incorporation of ESG factors into investment decision-making. Fiona points out that even though the term ESG has existed only since the mid-2000s, socially responsible investing has been going on for quite a bit longer. You can trace the origins of responsible investment back to the Old Testament, which has references to financial stewardship. There are also strong origins in the 18th century when the Quakers, the Methodists and many other religious groups laid out really clear guidelines to their followers on who they lent to, how they funded things and what they supported. Socially responsible investing rose in the 1960s and 70s in the US with anti-war sentiments. The early 70s saw the creation of the first mutual funds reflecting those values. So while investors today tend to focus on the financial impact of climate change and extreme weather events, the roots of today's ESG actually grew out of social protests rather than the environmental movement. I think the 80s is the beginning of the modern ESG movement. My version of how things connect would be probably the anti-apartheid movement. This is PGM's Timer Hyatt again on when he became aware of the power of socially responsible investing. It was when companies, pension funds and individuals divested their financial interests in apartheid South Africa. Timer was a lecturer in economics at Oxford when he watched students at American universities lead the divestment campaign he began to think about how social issues impacted his field. I think it was uh, the focus of uh, my research and academic world then on uh, equality and equity. How does household inequality change over time? Who becomes rich and who becomes poor? In that case, in really poor rural villages in South Asia. That was my personal awakening around the importance of social goals, societal goals and individual goals and therefore the importance of embedding that kind of values-based thinking in everything we do. 
But even if it was front of mind for people like Timer, through the 80s, 90s and early 2000s, socially responsible investing was still largely an afterthought. PRI's Fiona Reynolds remembers these as the Wall Street Gordon Gecko years. So if we think back to the 80s and the 90s, it was really about greed is good and how do we make so much money? And it didn't really matter who we trod over or what we did as long as we made that money. In 2005, United Nations Secretary Kofi Annan led an effort to try to change that. He asked big financial institutions to partner with the UN to integrate social concerns into capital markets and global institutions. The UN brought together investors, asset managers and government bodies at the Who Cares Wins conference in 2005. And from that conference came the publication of a landmark study in which the term ESG was first used. And the report argued the case that embedding environmental, social and governance factors in capital markets makes good business sense. So if it's better for the bottom line and it's better for people and it's better for the planet, why wouldn't we all be doing it? Investors began to see that ESG could play a key role in investment strategy. When we first started talking about the E, it was about 20 years ago. That's Christy Hill, PGIM's head of America's asset management and global head of ESG for PGIM Real Estate. We talked about going green in commercial real estate. It was connected to you know, recycling and, and composting. But then as we started to gain momentum in the early 2000s, the subsequent pursuit of LEED certifications and professional credentials really drew you know, energy and, and water and waste into the term sustainability. Investors like Christie began to see ESG issues not just as a set of risks, but also as opportunities. As a real estate investor, PGIM is in a unique position to measure the economic and ESG impacts of its projects. It was easier for real estate investors because I think in, in so many cases, we were able to actually see the economic rationale for the E and we're able to really see you know, how we realize you know, ROI from lighting retrofits and, and from you know, water conservation projects. And as real estate people, that's the way we think. And that's why the E has really been the most prominent component to date of the ESG. The E's prominence has made the S seem like the forgotten cousin of ESG. While companies made progress in disclosing their environmental impact, social factors like racial and gender equality and human rights, frankly, weren't given the same attention. Fiona Reynolds says that at PRI, they're really trying to make sure that investors now focus on that forgotten S. The S is like the poor cousin of the E and the G, and it's squeezed in the middle, and there's just not enough focus on it at all. Climate at the moment is, of course, the number one issue that investors are thinking about. And it's surprising to me, since we're all people, and investors are all people, that we don't think more about the social issues. Part of bringing the S to the fore means spelling out how to engage with ESG principles as an investor. In 2006, the UN launched PRI, the Principles for Responsible Investment, which would eventually become the organization that Fiona heads up. Fiona says the principles will play a fundamental role in improving investment decisions and, just as crucially, in understanding whether the signatories are actually putting the principles into practice. Okay, well, we've got these principles, but how do you actually integrate ESG factors into your investment portfolio? Best practice and guidance needed to be put into place. Then we had to hold investors to account for what they were saying. So everyone who's a signatory to the PRI has to report on an annual basis about 
their ESG activities, their responsible investment activities across their portfolio. PRI created what is essentially a corporate social credit score to monitor whether companies are measuring up to standards. The benchmarks have helped investors like Christie become smarter with their money. We think that's really critical because not only does that allow us to measure ourselves against our peers, which clearly we always want to be working to outperform our peers, but we like to think of ourselves as our biggest competition because we always want to continue to get better. So having those independent benchmarks also give us sort of an ability to to plan year over year and guide our strategy so that we can continue to improve. But the challenge of maintaining consistency and standardization continues today. Here's Timer Hyatt again. If something means something different to everyone, it actually means nothing. And I think investors, asset owners, regulators, all coming together to create a more standard definition of what it means to be a high ESG performer. What does it mean to be net zero? What does it mean to be well-governed? is critical. At the moment, if you went to two different ESG providers, you could have the same company rated quite differently by one versus the other. And for it to have real meaning and for the industry to overcome the stigma of greenwashing, we do need more consistency in our thinking about this. Greenwashing is essentially corporate posturing and deception to improve the public perception of their brands. The term's been around since the 1980s, coined by an environmentalist in an essay about the hotel industry's practice of placing placards in rooms promoting reuse of towels to, quote, save the environment, when in fact they were really only just boosting their profits. Well, greenwashing is really about saying that I'm taking action on climate change and I'm doing all of these good things, but it's really just marketing spin and underneath it, you're not doing much. It's like you can see a lot of people today, a lot of companies saying that they're committing to net zero by 2050, but we're not seeing much action. Greenwashing has come to the forefront as the effort to hold companies accountable has intensified. And to combat that all-talk-no-action mentality that Fiona's talking about, governments are creating regulations to make sure that companies focus on actions more than words when it comes to ESG, particularly in Europe. I'll let Christy explain. We're already seeing some European regulations are are being rolled out and they're deep and they're meaningful. But then you can pivot to the United States, where even if the U.S. government um, doesn't take a strong response to this, what we're already seeing is a lot of municipalities leaning on some of these European frameworks and trying to bring them to life on their own in the U.S. So I think that's definitely an area that we should all be focused is thinking about how to harmonize global regulation. The biggest challenge in governance and regulation of ESG is, of course, transparency. And the key to transparency is data. Data that measures CO2 emissions, corporate reporting on diversity and inclusion, and metrics relating to the G of corporate governance, evaluating how well a company is managed in the interests of its shareholders, or a company's ability to identify sources of long-term value creation. Tamer is encouraged by how far metrics on ESG have come in recent years. The data and analytic models driving ESG have improved immensely over the last five to ten years. You know, five, seven years ago, I was skeptical to what extent private markets and investors would be able to recognize that at some point climate change and other ESG underperformance would be internalized in market prices and therefore be something beyond their desire for social good they should care for, even as they try to optimize risk and return. And I think just the increasing data that is now available, that customers are asking for, that investors are asking for, that regulators are asking for, 
has allowed savvy investors to figure out within a particular sector who are the high performers. The rise of better metrics has allowed ESG to become another factor in terms of analysis, rather than simply a separate place where people put their money. Increasingly, what I'm saying is mainstream, that ESG is not a sideshow, it is the show. Alongside all the other factors, let's not forget rates matter, let's not forget inflation matters, GDP growth matters, relative value matters, but ESG also matter and they should absolutely be considered in every decision and uh, will increasingly be internalized in, in prices. When it comes to ESG, Timer divides things into two. There's risk-return ESG, that means the factors that influence the risk-return of a particular asset, and collateral benefits ESG, or investment decisions based on non-financial objectives, like ethical factors. To argue that ESG investing outperforms non-ESG investing, as a broad statement, probably needs a little refinement. And my refinement would be that the risk-return factors in ESG absolutely help better investment performance. But the collateral benefits piece of ESG actually is a distinct decision an investor needs to make. What Timer is talking about here is a move towards integrating ESG so it becomes just another factor in terms of analysis rather than a separate area for index funds. I think we as a society need to get comfortable with saying that we may in fact at some points need to sacrifice some risk and return if we care mainly about an environmental and social good. Often they are congruent, but at times we may want to overweight and that's absolutely fine. Another reason ESG has become so central to analysis is that it's become impossible to ignore, whether it's recent wildfires in California putting climate change at an even higher level of prominence than in recent years, or the calls for racial justice that have spurred investors to apply pressure on boardrooms to diversify their companies, or the increasing power of tech companies and concerns over privacy issues that have put the G front and centre as well. You have to think about social issues and governance issues. That's PRI's Fiona Reynolds again. Governance is about how the board runs a company. What's the quality of the board of the directors? How are they paid? How do they pay their executives? How are those executives incentivised? How executives are incentivised can reveal whether a company is short-sighted or truly focused on the future. In many cases, I'm getting paid because I've hit this sales figure or I'm investing money for other people and how much I outperform the market is how I'm going to get my bonus. So therefore, I'm not going to think about the long term because in actual fact, I'm getting paid based on my quarterly performance, not my long-term performance. And what's further complicating these interrelated ESG issues? The arrival of a global pandemic. One of the problems is that people silo the issues. Interestingly, I think that COVID-19 is a perfect example of bringing those issues together. You're not going to have a healthy economy if you don't have healthy people, and you don't have healthy people if you don't have a healthy planet. In other words, what's becoming increasingly clear is that the letters in ESG are inextricably linked. People often talk about the shift to focusing on the S or the G, but I think the reality is we're not, we're not shifting our focus, we're broadening our focus. That's PGIM's Christy Hill again. In her role, the E in ESG has long been prioritised, but she's watched it evolve from recycling and composting to a global existential threat. Just this summer, the UN released a report that alerted a, quote, code red for humanity with regard to climate change. I think that that UN report really 
brought the importance of climate risk and resilience to the forefront of many conversations. And also, as you look at the ongoing devastation to human life and to physical structures, whether you're thinking about Hurricane Ida or I'm in California, you know, current wildfires, I think we're going to continue to, to, to motivate people and really see a call to action around trying to assess and mitigate climate risk. It's important, for starters, to recognize that the climate issue isn't just about the E in ESG. The E and the S overlap, and that's where making sure that we're really focused on how to mitigate disaster or, or climate threats is even more critical. Protecting all those communities means focusing on that social component and making sure we're working with our stakeholders to educate them on what they need to do in those type of events. For Christy, that approach is pivotal when thinking about social sustainability. Clearly a challenge that we're facing as a nation in the United States. We have a, a clear lack of affordable housing. But with COVID, we've also really seen how underserved communities have really been impacted disproportionately. Their impact funds that focus broadly on not just providing affordable housing, but making sure that you're providing the wraparound services needed to support those communities properly. We look at ESG as an accelerant and as a catalyst to good development and doing it right and doing it in a way that's sustainable. That's what's going to allow all of this to you know, perpetuate long into the future. It is possible for us to do well and to do good at the same time, in other words. I think it's absolutely necessary. I don't know how you do one without the other. What Christie's talking about there may sound familiar. It echoes what we began the episode with, that group of investors in Victorian England who saw not only a profitable opportunity, but an opportunity to do some good, an approach to social investing that shows that it's possible to uplift communities impacted by modern environmental issues, whether that be Victorian Londoners affected by industrialization or modern-day climate change refugees. That out-of-the-box thinking paid off for investors in 1800s London, just as it can do for investors today. ESG issues aren't simply risks. They're also opportunities. We always see opportunity in real estate. Um, we love it, and that's what we, we dedicate our lives to. But I think here, it's really about learning from what's happened and then applying that knowledge to a go-forward strategy. So I'm, I'm never a fan of a reactionary approach to anything, and I've, I've been saying that throughout this pandemic because we don't know how it's going to end yet. As the virus spread through communities, the pandemic had direct effects on real estate. People working from home, families crammed together in small apartments, and workers abandoning offices, leaving everyone to wonder what life would be like in a post-pandemic world. Coming out of the gate, there was the reaction of, oh my gosh, this is the death of office. This is the death of the city and no one's ever going to go back. And and I personally, nor was you know, Pedram Real Estate ever, you know, philosophically, did we believe that was the case. In fact, Christie's already started to see an uptick in commercial real estate. We're starting to see retail tenants come back and take space. The interesting place where we all talk about, you know, long-term effect on real estate is in the office sector, as we think about redesigning space and and maybe potentially the next pandemic, how are we designing space so that we have more opportunities for business continuation? How are we providing more opportunities for people to get the light in the air that maybe they weren't getting in, in prior design? So I think we're trying to evolve design really with a focus on health and well-being. The pandemic exposed economic vulnerabilities, but it also inspired resilience and innovative thinking just as it will when it comes to the larger challenge of climate change. A whole new investment ecosystem is opening up with the climate change transition. The most obvious one might be renewable infrastructure equity. 
and the growing opportunities in wind and solar and hydroelectric power, and particularly in emerging markets where perhaps these are less saturated opportunities. I think on the more speculative venture capital ends and over a longer time periods, I think hydrogen will matter. I think carbon capture technologies uh, will matter as well. And then there's a whole infrastructure for electronic vehicles in addition to EVs themselves. And I think it's imperative for investors not just to focus on either divestment or engagement with the existing group of companies, but really recognize the development of these new sectors. To take one example, when it comes to real estate, with better information and data, even places that were once deemed too risky can be reconsidered as ripe with opportunity. Really, it's not about abandoning communities that face climate risk, but how do you create more resilient buildings? How do you make existing properties more resilient? So that also affects the returns. And I think we now have over a dozen factors, for example, in purely just the climate change areas that we look at every time we look at a property. And not only does creating more durable buildings create more resilience to climate change and thus better returns, it also creates more resilient communities. Here's Christy Hill again. I think it's about being a thoughtful investor and it's not just about us and our investors and our tenants and our residents. I use the word durable a lot because for me, when I think about ESG and real estate and returns, durable is the word that's important to keep them all hanging together. And we want that property to be durable for our users so that they are safe and so that they are protected and so that they can have a quality life. But ultimately, if we are successful in that, that should equate to durable returns for our property. Companies that focus on the long-term are quite simply better long-term investments. And that includes companies that focus on the social issues that are now front and center, the S, It's no longer the forgotten cousin. And as ESG investing evolves, so do investors and leaders like Christy and Timer. The last year and a half has been a wake-up call for the financial services industry for all of the US and therefore for our employees, our associates, our clients around just how important it, it is to engage on issues of racial equity, of equity on the LBGTQ front, on gender equity. In other words, ESG issues will always play a significant role, as they always have, even if they're called by a different name, or for that matter, no name at all. Because ESG investing, after all, is simply better investing, smarter investing, a mindset that's not just about helping the bottom line, but also helping the communities and the world around us. Here's Fiona Reynolds again. I really think that whole shareholder primacy, free and economic sort of theory is changing and then it's moving much more to stakeholder thinking, that as a company, I need to think about my shareholders. They're one of my stakeholders, but I need to think about my employees. I need to think about the community in which I'm located. I need to think about the suppliers that I use, and I need to think about my customers, and that I need to think about all of these things to be a good corporation that is actually going to make money for investors over the long term. And that is really changing. It needs to change quicker, but it is changing. By Fiona's telling, ESG is the future of investing. And P. Jim's timer agrees. ESG over the next year, the next decade and the next 50 years is going to be one of the most important factors for all of society to grapple with. And if investors, asset managers and asset owners are going to be 
relevant to the biggest issues that society is dealing with, there will absolutely have to be, and my senses are very keen to be at the center of being part of the solution and figuring out how they can reshape the world. If there's anything that the arc of ESG investing can teach us, from those early days of Victorian model dwellings companies to the UNPRI and current investing initiatives, it's that ESG has always been around with all of its elements, the E, the S and the G interlinked. The movement is not going anywhere. In some ways, it's only just begun. Thanks to PGIM's Timer Hyatt and Christy Hill and to Fiona Reynolds for talking with us. More episodes of The Outthinking Investor are coming soon. Next up, global pension funds. It might seem a wee bit sleepy and unsexy as far as investing opportunities go, but our next episode might change your mind. The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from PGIM and Bloomberg Media Studios. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, leave us a review. This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PGIM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PGIM's views. PGIM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PGIM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGIM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of MG PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2021. The PGIM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGIM's parent and its related entities, registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.